Good morning, Stone County and surrounding area. This is Dr. Eric Spann with the What's Up Doc Bleeding Edge Update for 825-2020. We're not going to have any sound effects today. This is going to be very serious, and if I sound careful, it's because I want you to pay really close attention and realize that all of us need to be careful right now, and I want this to be no different. In Independence County, we have more good news. They are down to 100 active cases, and this is a 17% of their total over the pandemic, which is uh, triple in improvement just over the last three weeks. They are now up to 692 cases, but 592 have recovered. For Sharp County, Fulton County, and Baxter County, all news is good. For Izzard County, We have uh, three new cases. They are in the relatively yellow zone. If you look at green, yellow, and red, uh, all but uh, Sharp County for the last 24 hours and Izzard County with four new cases and three new cases respectively are are in the green, except, of course, Stone County, which we'll deal with. Now, down to business in Stone County. We have had a total, as best I can glean from all of our local clinics, health unit data that's available, our hospital, uh, local uh, hospital settings. We have had about 194 total cases in Stone County, but we're looking at about 150 cases over the last 14 days. We have 110 active cases, 84 cases recovered. We thankfully have still only had one death, and we still only have nine deaths total with no new deaths over the last two weeks in our region. The last one was in Independence County. And our active cases in Stone County, as I said, are up to 57% currently of our total. We have uh, seven cases that I can actively document. That is going to be more than what the state says today, but they're still several days behind, and I'll address more of that later. So overall, uh, the White River watershed region that we usually update uh, for all of the areas that we serve, much better across the board. We now have only 23% of our cases in our entire region that are active, which is 300 out of 1,279, and this is so much improved over the last two weeks. Hopefully, Stone County will move toward that, and we are starting to do better with local careful behaviors, but we have school coming up, and we'll address that more later as well. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of uh, local perspective on how these numbers are determined and I do call the state and all of the local physicians that can be reached daily. One thing to consider is despite the great work that our local health unit has done, they're not able to track their own positive locally because of the way the system attributes active cases. Also, Boston Mountain Clinics have done a really good job making available immediate antigen testing, but those numbers are not made available to me. I've taken great care to try to avoid duplication. This information that I'm about to share with you is shared with all of the uh, local care providers that have asked for it, and I really want to continue to thank Dr. Simpson, uh, Callie Taylor, our local hospital, and their nurse directors, Dr. Zini, our local health unit, our state epidemiology department, Mr. Howard and Mr. Sullivan at uh, the school system here. Now, I want you to know, too, that I'll go through these statistics, but understand that based on our past two weeks, I'm assuming that 
when we have presumed cases in families that have very high risk exposures and similar symptoms as the positive cases confirmed within a family, that at least 50% of those family members are going to be actively positive if tested. And of the pending cases that we have out at the hospital, the clinics, and the health unit, that approximately 20% of those over the course of this outbreak have been positive. Cases prior to the 14th of August in Stone County were only 79, and you'll understand why that's important as we look at our current cases. So our local hospital has tested about 128 people. Of course, everyone has to be tested who's going to have a surgery. So we have a lot of people who are at low risk or asymptomatic. Um, They've had 27 positives through our local hospital, uh, through our clinics. We have had uh, the remainder that lead us up to 72 attributable positives. Without the local health unit's numbers and without a couple of our local clinics, that number 72 could easily be 85 to 100, but we'll stick with 72. Total in our region so far tested over the last two weeks have been 305 with 74 patients tested at the health unit in their uh, great public free screening that was done today. With 72 known and confirmed positive tests, with 110 untested but high-risk close associates that are presumptive cases in homes in our region uh, locally here, and with 110 pending tests, the probable expected cases that we've had between 814 and 824 over the last 10 days of this outbreak are probably around 149. Considering that, I want you to think about the perspective for your particular age group. We're up now to the last two categories that I've not discussed, which are the 25 to 34-year age group and the 55 to 64-year age group. So in the United States, we have 44 million people that are 25 to 34. It is actually the largest single demographic that we have in that age group in the United States so far in this little over five months. We've had 35,456 deaths and 1,133 deaths from COVID. Now, as I always state, this does not take into account the body mass index, the chronic health uh, problems. So I'm sure that if we were looking at healthy 25 to 34-year-olds that were thin and did not have uh, the status of obesity, that they would be much lower in risk. But we'll just take the 1,133 in those 44 million people. So in that age group, that is one in 40,000 25 to 34-year-olds have died of COVID. If you look at any 25 to 34-year-old and you look at them as part of the entire population of the U.S., the risk drops to the, any 25 to 34-year-old having a risk in the United States of one in 400,000 people. Just by way of comparison, it is at one in 115,000 chance that a person will die of running a marathon, which is one of the greatest things you can do. But it's also about the rate of dying from a strike of lightning for anyone in the United States. But this will give you even a greater perspective. It's the same rate of people who are chronically constipated that die of that disorder. So consider that uh, as you look at your day-to-day life. Now let's go to the 55 to 64-year-old age group. There are 42 million people, and this is actually the second most populous group of people in our country. And you can see back in the population statistics after World War II why that's so with the baby boomers. 
But you see that we have had 214,898 people die in any one year in that age group, which is uh, much larger, of course, than the number who've died of COVID in this five plus months, which is 18,579. That means the risk of a 55 to 64 year old in their age group dying of COVID is one in 2,500. But their risk as a whole in the United States is any 55 to 64-year-old has a 1 in 25,000 chance of dying out of all people. Now, just by way of perspective, the chance of dying from an insect sting or of exercising is 1 in 50,000, which is just a little more common. And it's a chance of 1 in 12,000 that one would die of electrocution or canoeing as I've said yesterday about a different group of people, and there's a 1 in 1,000 chance that anyone who gets in a body of water will drown as a percentage of all deaths. And the death chance of a motorcycle accident for motorcycle riders is 1 in 500. Well, who are the people that are most likely to ride a motorcycle? People between 55 and 74, it seems. And you don't see people saying, oh, I can't go get out on my cycle on this great weather day because I might die. So just thinking about this, the, the chances of dying from any other cause in any age group is greater than 1 in 10 than COVID, and that's especially true for our elderly. So I hope this gives you some idea what the chances are. And I say again, the chances of dying from diseases that are completely preventable for you based on lifestyle, on eating, on exercise, on your body fat, on your body mass index, drug and alcohol abuse is easily 10 to 100 times more likely, and we can prevent those completely just by behavior. Now, just for some research that's appropriate for today, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this was also reported in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized the use of convalescent plasma, which is the antibody-rich blood component taken from recovered COVID-19 patients for the treatment of coronavirus cases. And this followed a study from the Mayo Clinic that suggested a mortality benefit with convalescent plasma. So they looked at 35,000 hospitalized patients with COVID-19, and their seven-day mortality was 1 in 11 in those transfused within three days of being diagnosed. But it increased to 12% or 1 in 8 or so if the transfusion waited until day 4 or after. So obviously there's something about getting convalescent plasma within the first three days. They state that the use of convalescent plasma with higher antibody levels was also associated with a lower mortality than plasma from patients who recovered who had lower antibody levels. And the reduction in mortality was 35% overall but it stated above better the more antibodies that the plasma had in it, which makes sense. The study did not have the traditional placebo arm and has not undergone peer review yet, but it was enough that the top NIH officials who had cautioned the previous week against emergency approval uh, allowed such, and the agency's action this Sunday permits the use of treatment on hospitalized COVID-19 patients and opens up the possibility for faster and easier access to this promising treatment. While studies and trials continue to explore how much, how often, for how long, the authors of the Wall Street Journal article note that the number of new coronavirus infections in the U.S. declined from the previous day and at its lowest level in more than two months. 
with a ninth straight day below 50,000 new cases. This is while the cases are beginning to climb again across Europe, and Spain is at the forefront of this. And I've talked about Spain before with their difficulty getting that culture to social distance, which is just part of that Latinized culture that came from Spain to South America and then to uh, Central America. They simply are a very cordial, very... Uh, interactive people who do not like social distancing, which we saw as part of the outbreak in northwest Arkansas around the end of May and early June. Now, Spain is up to 5,000 cases a day on average, and public health experts say that this is because they really didn't hold their effective testing and tracing systems and didn't make them more robust, and they didn't clearly communicate to the population how to behave once the decrease started, and this seems to be the chief reason for their resurgence. I can say that this is not the case in the United States. Our CDC and state health department have done a great job communicating day by day the messages of how to stay healthy and to try to keep from spreading or receiving this virus from others. The point for me, guys, is that this we're getting good data on good drugs as how to treat you if you need to be in the hospital and require oxygen. Next article from today, which is the World Health Organization recommends against face masks in kids in community settings under the age of five. And this was from uh, David Fairchild, MD, MPH, and this was reviewed by also Dr. Elizabeth Hefner at Journal Watch, which is a branch of the New England Journal of Medicine. The World Health Organization recommends that children in a community setting under five not wear masks as a preventative measure against COVID in recent guidance on mask usage. The decision was based on expert opinions on childhood developmental milestones, challenges with mask compliance, and the autonomy required to wear a mask properly. If countries use a two- or three-year age cutoff for recommending masks, then children should be directly supervised by adults to ensure compliance, they state, particularly when masks are expected to be worn for longer periods. For youth ages 6 to 11, a risk-based approach should consider the intensity of local transmission, they state, a child's ability to comply, whether they live with at-risk adults, or other factors that could make their situation more risky to themselves or others. Adolescents aged 12 years and older should follow the same guidance as for adults, the World Health Organization states. They go on to say that mask use should not be required for any child with any developmental disorder, any disability, or other health condition that could interfere with wearing a mask. They also note that face shields only provide eye protection and should not be considered as equivalent to masks with respect to respiratory droplet protection and or source control, but I have seen people that could get away with masks that simply could not tolerate But I have personally seen patients that could wear shields that covered their entire face and neck who could not tolerate masks. So this is just a new piece of information. In the follow-up August 23rd journal watch uh, on Sunday, the convalescent plasma a study was noted the limited spread in child care is the next, and we go on to remdesivir and some risk factors that affect teachers and adult caregivers for children. So Dr. Andre Sofair, who's reviewed a lot of the other articles that I've quoted to you, states the following about transmission in child care settings. In Rhode Island, there was a study, and this was reported in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Review, which is one of our oldest and best reviews for infectious disease and all causes of mortality in the United States. Just yesterday, this was reported that when child care centers in Rhode Island adhered to public health guidance, they still had limited spread of COVID-19. So about 
650 or more child care facilities in Rhode Island were surveyed and the following was was deduced. After reopening in June, adults were required to wear masks. Children and adults were screened for symptoms daily. They had enhanced cleaning and disinfection protocols implemented. Enrollment was limited, and staff and students stayed in the same groups throughout the day. And I know our local school system is adopting some of these family group or pod type settings, which I personally think is a really good idea. In June and July, they had 52 confirmed and probable COVID-19 cases identified, mostly in late July when community transmission was increased in that state. And that occurred in 29 different child care programs. Potential secondary transmission was identified in four of those 650-plus facilities that opened. Now, during this time, roughly 850 people were quarantined as a result of their follow-up, and the authors note that infections were likely underreported because of the lack of symptoms in many children, and I've seen that the vast majority of children are asymptomatic. The idea, folks, from me to you is, regardless of the precautions and the careful uh, behaviors of adults with great rules based on good science, we're still going to see hundreds and thousands of people infected when schools reopen. It's just the nature of this virus. No matter what we do, it is going to get out, which is why many of us who are uh, relating very closely to ill patients and the education system and the public health system believe that within two to three weeks of school opening, we're just going to have to close it down because of cases that are bound to come. We're not trying to be doomsayers, and we want the best for our kids and our school educational system and our sports programs. But this is simply mathematically going to happen. One uh, follow-up study on remdesivir, this is a new angle that with moderate illness, and that is illness that does not require hospitalization or oxygen, that a five-day regimen of remdesivir may confer a modest clinical benefit, the Journal of the American Medical Association stated in an open-label randomized trial for patients with moderate COVID-19. Now, remdesivir has received an emergency use authorization for severe COVID patients, but this was a test on people that didn't require all that high-level ICU-type care. So roughly 600 patients with COVID-19 who didn't require supplemental oxygen at study entry were randomized either five- or ten-day course of remdesivir, and it was noted that at day 11, patients given that five-day treatment had improved more on a seven-point scale regarding their clinical status than care without remdesivir. And by day 14, both treatment groups of five and 10 day were significantly better than standard care without that drug. So my comment to you is we have another good drug that when affordable and available can help to treat COVID-19 disease in those who don't require hospitalization. But right now, folks, that's $2,000 a person for treatment for five days minimum. But researchers state that even at $5,000 per treatment, insurers would save money in the long term if people were treated who had the symptoms of moderate disease. Now, lastly, and almost to me most interestingly, and related to our current situation in Stone County, risk factors among teachers and parents. This was published from the New England Journal of Medicine's Journal Watch Synthesis. That is roughly 51% of teachers that were surveyed by the Annals of Internal Medicine, and this was reported over to Journal Watch, using 2018 National Health Interview Survey data showed that most teachers have a definite or probable risk factor for severe COVID-19, according to a letter published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is one of our most respected journals. Now, what does that mean? Among adults living with school-aged children, 
or teachers who are teaching, of course, school-age children, 54% had probable risk factors. The most common ones were, as you can imagine, a body mass index of 30 or greater, which was 28% for teachers, but 33% for adults living with children, and hypertension, which was 17% across the board. So the authors conclude the resumption of face-to-face instruction is critical for children's development, health, and welfare. However, Without adequate safeguards, reopening schools could put millions of vulnerable adults at risk for severe COVID-19 illness. So the summary for me today, and I'm going to get personal with you in Stone County and in Mountain View and those who have kids who are about to go back to school or those who are decision makers. Pray for our teachers and our school kids. We have a lot of teachers and school workers who are at risk for COVID-19 disease complications. The medical community, I assure you, has done everything possible to draw attention to our local outbreak, to state regulators and state administrators, in the effort to support our teachers and educators as they've communicated to the state education department. All told, folks, school's going to start regardless of the outbreak or number of cases in this city and county right now. We are sitting at, according to the state's ACHI data, 21 every thousand in the community and that Stone County as a whole. We would have to have 500 more cases over the next seven to 10 days to qualify as a critical zone that could go completely to online education. And I have researched every angle with all the resources that I could find. And very simply, this is going to happen regardless. The Arkansas Education Association's request for a delay in in in-person school start last week was rejected at the state level, and I'm aware that all local attempts through the Arkansas Department of Health and the Arkansas Department of Education and between the Arkansas Department of Health and the Arkansas Department of Education have been rejected for an exemption for Stone County. And all one can do is their best, and I know a lot of people who have done their best this week. However, remember, it's a parent or guardian's responsibility to notify the school of any necessary quarantine period that your child or young person might have between August the 26th and, say, 14 days thereafter, which, by the way, would be the Tuesday after Labor Day if there's a risk of them having been exposed to COVID-19. So I would suggest that those of you that have such concerns or such wishes would talk to your doctor or your health care provider if this is the case in your particular situation. Also... Remember that parents have the option of opting to start the school year with a digital learning option, and there's other home alternatives that exist. If a parent is truly concerned starting this school year in Stone County, one wonders if there's any imaginable situation in which there will be any realistic consequences for waiting until after Labor Day or any imaginable enforcement of truancy laws during a current pandemic for such a short period in such a time as this. But I don't have this battle, and I feel for those of you that do, especially for our teachers and administrators. So with many of the insiders and professional concern that the school will be suspended within two to three weeks of opening due to expected COVID cases, all of these issues take on an even more pertinent aspect and significance for this next two-week period. So I, I totally sympathize with all of you that are concerned and worried. And I want to read to you something that I found today. Remember that the attendance policy for the Stone County School District states, and I quote, absences shall be classified as either excused or unexcused as determined by the principal and his or her designee. Excused absences shall include personal illness, illness of an immediate family member, a death in the family, extreme weather conditions, recognized religious observances, failure of the school bus to make scheduled uh, stops or snow route stops, appointments with a doctor or a dentist, 
Also, they mentioned that a maximum of five days per semester will be recognized as excused absences with parent notes. The note must contain an excusable reason for the absence. Written excuses are submitted for absences and tardiness within 10 school days after a student returns to school. Failure to submit an excuse will result in the absence or tardy being classified as unexcused. System-wide procedures for accounting and reporting are followed, they state. Regardless of the difficulty of this decision, you can take some things to heart regarding your child's long-term health and vitality. And that is that the necessary miles to get school kids annually back and forth is about 10 times more dangerous than COVID to their lives or long-term health. The rates of mortality in children getting COVID at school and having any kind of long-term critical or life-threatening illness is about the risk of riding 20 miles in a car once in your lifetime getting on a horse once in your lifetime, or the simple act of getting out of bed every day during your lifetime. So I hope that makes you feel better. Also, please be nice to your school board, teachers, and school administrators. Folks, they are in an impossible situation. They literally are in a no-win situation. They need your support and your understanding. Now, I really appreciate you hanging with me. I hope this helps and informs and blesses and serves you. And let's do the best we can to get through this next couple of weeks and get this uh, this big bump in our rates down by behaving, by staying home, by going back to your social distancing, by mask wearing all the time. Let's encourage all the people involved. And in two to three weeks, I think we're going to be able to look back and see that all of these efforts that were taken really did help. So I'll see you soon, hopefully by Friday, with another update unless something urgent happens. Thanks for your attention. Look forward to seeing you next time. Don't stop.